Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Truth Be Told podcast. I'm Shabs. I'm Shady. Thank you so much for the people who listened, um, liked, subscribed um, on our first episode. I hope the Annalise Michael audio clip didn't scare you all too much. If you managed to make it this far, you clearly enjoyed the first podcast. And if you did like that and you would like more, please do follow us on YouTube. We are under the Truth Be Told podcast. You can now follow us on iTunes as well under Truth Be Told and also on Stitcher for Android users for Truth Be Told. So we received a few comments about the sound saying that in the last podcast I sounded really far away. So this time we're hoping that me and Shady are speaking at the same volume. So please let us know if that's better in this podcast or if we need to tweak it again. I think it's the first time that anybody said that I spoke too quietly, isn't it Shady? Yeah, that's true. You should try living with her. (laughs) For the second episode, we're going to be looking at Beverly Allett who is more famously known as the Angel of Death. The Case of Beverly Allett Beverly Gale Allett was born on October 4th, 1968, in Grantham, Lincolnshire, in England. She grew up in the village of Corby Glen, near the town of Grantham. She had a brother and two sisters. Her father, Richard Allett, worked in an off-licence, and her mother as a school cleaner. Allett attended Charles Red Secondary Modern School, having failed the test to enter Castephen and Grantham Girls' School. She would often volunteer for babysitting jobs and left school at the age of 16, taking a course in nursing at Grantham College. Allett would become one of the most notorious child killers in England. She would go on to murder four children, attempting to murder three others and causing grievous bodily harm to a further six. At an early age, Allett would begin to exhibit some strange behaviours to draw attention to herself such as wearing bandages or casts to cover wounds without the actual injuries being examined. As she continued through adolescence, Alit began to become more attention-seeking as she became overweight. She would often become aggressive towards others. She spent considerable time in hospital for a range of ailments, such as suffering from gallbladder pain, headaches, urinary infection, uncontrolled vomiting, blurred vision, minor injuries, appendicitis, back trouble and ulcers. During a hospital stay in 1991, she tampered with a thermometer to make it produce a higher reading. Doctors would end up removing a perfectly healthy appendix. The surgical scars took some time to heal as Alit would insist on picking at them. Alit was known to self-harm. She would also inflict harm on herself as a way of getting attention. On one occasion, she used a hammer to do so. On another, her weapon of choice was glass. She would move from one doctor to the next as medical practitioners became familiar with her attention-seeking behaviour. The behaviour Alit would exhibit was typical of Munchausen syndrome and when this behaviour failed to provide the attention she wanted, 
she would begin to harm others to feed this desire. Alet went on to train as a nurse, where her odd behaviours would continue, such as smearing faeces on the walls of a nursing home where she trained. She was absent from work often due to claims of being ill. Her then-boyfriend would say later that she was aggressive, manipulative and deceptive, claiming false pregnancy as well as rape before the end of the relationship. Notwithstanding of the fact that Alit's attendance being low and her successive failure to pass her nursing exams, she was granted a temporary six-month contract at Grantham Castephen Hospital in Lincolnshire in 1991, where she began work in Children's Ward 4. The ward was severely understaffed at the time and this could have resulted in her violent and attention-seeking behaviour to go unnoticed for so long. Her first victim was seven-month-old Liam Taylor on February 21st, 1991, who had been admitted to the ward with chest infection. Alit would go out of her way to reassure parents that Liam was in good hands and also managed to persuade parents to go home and get rest. When the parents returned later, they were shocked to discover that Liam had suffered from a respiratory emergency but had recovered. Alec then volunteered to stay over for the night shift to watch over Liam alongside the parents. It was just before midnight that Liam suffered a second respiratory crisis. However, doctors felt confident that he had become stable. Alec was left alone with the boy and it was at this point that Liam's condition dramatically worsened becoming very pale and red blotches appearing on his face. It was then that Alec called the emergency resuscitation team. Alec's nursing colleagues were confused by the absence of alarm monitors at the time, which had failed to sound when Liam became apneic. Liam suffered cardiac arrest and despite the best efforts of the resuscitation team, he suffered severe brain damage and remained alive with the aid of a life support machine. His parents made the agonising decision to remove their baby from life support on advice from doctors and his cause of death was recorded as heart failure. Just two weeks after Liam's death, Timothy Hardwick, an 11-year-old with cerebral palsy who was admitted to the war following an epileptic fit on March 5th, 1991, became Alet's second victim. Once again, Alet took over the care of the boy and following a period when she was alone with him, she summoned the emergency resuscitation team, who found that Timothy did not have a pulse and was turning blue. Despite trying their best, the team, which included a paediatrician, were unable to revive him. An autopsy that was performed could not determine the actual cause of death, although his epilepsy was officially blamed. Alec's third victim was one-year-old Kaylee Desmond, who was admitted to the ward on March 3rd, 1991, with a chest infection. Kaylee seemed to be recovering well from the infection, but just five days later, with Alec in attendance, Kaylee went into cardiac arrest in the bed where Liam Taylor had died two weeks before. 
the resuscitation team were able to revive her and she was transferred to another hospital in Nottingham where attending physicians discovered an odd puncture hole under her armpit through a thorough examination. They also discovered an air bubble near to the puncture mark which they attributed to an accidental injection but no investigation was ever undertaken. Paul Crampton, who was five months of age, became the next victim. He was placed on the ward on March 20th, 1991 as a result of a non-serious bronchial infection. Just prior to his hospital release, Alec, who was again attending a patient by herself, summoned help as Paul appeared to be suffering from hypoglycemia, going into a near coma on three separate occasions. Doctors were able to revive him each time but were unable to explain the fluctuations in his insulin levels. When he was taken by ambulance to another hospital in Nottingham, Alec went along with him. He was again found to have too much insulin. Paul fortunately managed to escape his near-death experience. The very next day, five-year-old Bradley Gibson who was suffering from pneumonia, went into cardiac arrest but was saved by doctors. Blood tests showed that his insulin was high, which made no sense to the attending physicians. Another heart attack later that night, with Alec being in attendance, and he was transported to Nottingham, where he recovered. Alas, despite the sudden spike in health-related problems on the ward, which were all in the presence of Alec, no suspicions were raised and she continued to harm patients on the ward. On March 22nd, 1991, two-year-old victim Yik Hung Shan turned blue and appeared to be in a huge amount of distress when Alec had raised the alarm, but he responded well to oxygen. After another attack occurred, he too was transferred to a larger hospital in Nottingham where he recovered. His symptoms were attributed to a fall that the child had had, which resulted in a skull fracture. The next of Alex's victims were two-month-old twins, Katie and Becky Phillips, who were being kept in for observation as a result of their premature delivery. Becky was brought onto the ward after an episode of gastroenteritis on April 1st, 1991, with Alex taking over her care. After two days, Alec raised the alarm, claiming that Becky appeared hypoglycemic and cold to touch, but nothing was found. Becky was sent home with her mother. During the night, she started to convulse and cry out in apparent pain, but when called for, the doctor suggested she had colic. The parents kept her in their bed to keep an eye on her, but sadly she died in the night. Despite an autopsy, there was no clear cause of death. Katie, the surviving twin, was admitted to Grantham just as a precaution and unfortunately for her, Alec was on shift. It wasn't long before Alec had once again called for the resuscitation team to revive Katie who had stopped breathing. Efforts to revive Katie were successful but two days later she suffered a similar attack which resulted in the atelectasis, which is the collapsing of the lungs. Following another effort to revive her, 
she was transferred to Nottingham, where it was found that five of her ribs were broken, in addition to her having suffered serious brain damage as a result of her oxygen deprivation. In a shocking twist of fate, Katie's mother, Sue Phillips, was so grateful to Alec for saving her baby's life that she asked her to be Katie's godmother. Alec accepted willingly, despite having inflicted partial paralysis, cerebral palsy and sight and hearing damage on the infant. There were four more victims to follow, but finally, due to high incident rate of healthy individuals becoming ill on the ward, suspicions were raised, which were linked with Alec's shift attendance record. Her violent spree was brought to an end with the death of 15-month-old Claire Peck on April 22, 1991. Whilst in Alec's care for only a few minutes, the infant suffered a heart attack. The resuscitation team revived her successfully, but when again alone in Alec's presence, baby Claire suffered a second attack from which she could not be revived. Dr Nelson Porter, the consultant at the hospital, was not to be phased by the autopsy report for Claire and an inquiry into the case was opened. Dr Porter was alarmed by the high number of cardiac arrests over the previous two months on the ward. An airborne virus was initially suspected but this resulted in them finding nothing. A test that revealed a high level of potassium present in Claire's blood resulted in the police being summoned 18 days later. Her exhumation discovered traces of lignocaine in her system, a drug used during cardiac arrest but never given to a baby. Stuart Clifton was a police superintendent assigned to the investigation. He had suspected foul play and examined the other suspicious cases that had occurred in the previous two months, finding inordinately high doses of insulin in most. Further evidence revealed that Alec had reported the key missing to the insulin refrigerator. All records were checked, parents of the victims were interviewed and a security camera was installed in the ward itself. Further suspicions were raised when checks of records revealed missing daily nursing logs which corresponded to the time period when Paul Crampton had been on the ward. When 25 separate suspicious episodes with 13 of the victims identified, four of whom were dead, the only common factor was the presence of Beverly Allett in every instance. Allett was formally charged with murder in November of 1991. She appeared to be quite calm under interrogation, denying any parts in the attacks, insisting she had merely been caring for the victims. After a search of her home was carried out, missing parts of the nursing log were obtained. Further extensive background checks by the police indicated a pattern of behaviour that pointed to a very serious personality disorder, and Allah exhibited symptoms of both Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Despite various visits and assessments by a number of healthcare professionals whilst in prison, Alec refused to confess what she had done. After a number of hearings, she was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. As she awaited trial, 
she rapidly lost weight and developed anorexia nervosa, providing further evidence of her psychological problems. Following numerous delays due to her illnesses, as a result of which she had lost 70 pounds, she went to trial at Nottingham Crown Court on February 15, 1993, where prosecutors demonstrated to the jury the evidence of Alex's attendance during all suspicious circumstances. Evidence about high readings of insulin and potassium in each of the victims, as well as drug injection and puncture marks, were also linked to Alex. She was further accused of cutting off her victim's oxygen, either by smothering or by tampering with machines. It was Professor Meadow's opinion that Beverly Allett would never be cured, making her a clear danger to anyone with whom she might come into contact. The trial lasted just shy of two months, of which only 16 days were in attendance due to illness. Allett was convicted on May 23rd, 1993 and given 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. It was the harshest sentence ever delivered to a female, but according to Mr Justice Lantham, the level of pain and suffering that Alet had caused her victims and to their families, as well as the smearing of the profession she was in, the sentence was just. So, the case of Beverly Allett was extremely complex. Beverly Allett had got away for 59 days prior to any sort of investigation being done. A lot of the family members didn't want to get involved because they believed that the uh, the staffing at um, Grantham Hospital had done a very good job. I would like to introduce Dr. H onto the show to give us some medical insight into how Beverly Allett was actually caught. From what I am aware, in the case of Paul Crampton, there was an abnormally high level of insulin. So, Dr. H, just uh, introducing you to the show. Uh, welcome onto the show. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Just the first question I would like to ask is, prior to um, any sort of investigation being done, now this was a long time ago, this was almost a few decades ago that this actually happened, but there was an abnormally high amount of cardiac arrests on the ward, in the space of a few weeks, there were approximately 12 cardiac arrests. Would that seem suspicious nowadays or what kind of procedures are in place if such a thing would happen or there was a case in which there was, was a large number of cardiac arrests on the ward? Well, I think at the time um, that raised suspicions, um, when there were 12 cardiac arrests, um, it, it would normally raise suspicion within the context of the ward itself, but... I think there's probably more um, there's probably more procedures and um, analysis that take place um, now than there were before. Okay, now am I correct to think the control of insulin on wards is a lot stricter? There are control measures in place in terms of access to insulin on the ward, 
and specific individuals are responsible to make sure that the insulin levels are not being abused, I would say. Is that correct? Well, I think insulin is one of several drugs that um, now have stricter controls. Um, obviously, the, the cases um, of um, criminal misuse of insulin is one of the factors that's uh, causing the, there to be greater controls on insulin um, use within wards. Um, but you can probably apply the same thing to you know other controlled drugs, um, you know such as morphine, you know, oxycodone, etc. So just going back to Paul Crampton now, Alex's downfall was the fact that the insulin levels were very high. If you could just go into a tiny bit of detail in terms of how that actually caught Beverly Allen out in in the end. Well, insulin levels in some occasion can be high in the individual. Um, usually it's um, an insulin level would be high because it's given externally um, such as in a diabetic um, in some rare circumstances the insulin level can be raised because of increased production within a person's own body um, but that's really due to a rare condition called insulinoma where the body produces increased levels of insulin now normally when insulin is produced in the body there is another chemical called C-peptide, which is a type of protein that is produced alongside insulin. So if you have an increased level of insulin, you're also getting increasing le levels of C-peptide. Now, something that wasn't considered at the time, but actually really helped with the investigation, was that um, it's, it's about uh, the fact that if you're given external insulin, you wouldn't necessarily get a, a raised C-peptide level. So um, the investigators at the time were able to distinguish between you know, whether the high insulin um, levels, whether they were due to the body's own production of insulin or whether it was insulin that was given externally. Okay, so medical science actually, in, in effect, got the better of Beverly Allen in that case. She could have actually gone a long time without being caught if it were for this discovery that C-peptide levels um, did actually should have matched up to insulin levels. Well, the, the ability to detect between um, insulin produced in the body and external insulin using C-peptide was always there. But because it was such a peculiarity, um, because the kind of case that this was you know this sort of scenario had never come up so nobody ever really thought about it until this case okay thank you um thank you for that medical advice on the show uh, i'm sure we'll be calling you again in, in on uh, future shows at some point in regards to any medical evidence that we possibly don't have the knowledge to talk about and i'm sure you will so thank you very much for coming on to our show dr h um, thank you so much it was a pleasure okay thank you so that was the story of Beverly Allett. Um, so how long did she actually spend in prison altogether? She didn't actually go to prison. She ended up being incarcerated in Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottingham. It's a high security facility that houses mainly individuals that are under the Mental Health Act. Rampton is the female equivalent to um, Ashworth then. Ashworth is where Ian Brady, the Moore's murderer, died. So what she continued to do at Rampton was to continue her attention-seeking behaviour. Quite similar to what she did at, in her early life, she would harm herself just for that attention's sake. 
She ended up admitting to three of the murders of which she was charged, as well as six of the assaults. And because the nature of the crimes are so harsh, she was placed under the Home Office list as never being eligible for parole. So she could never come out on bail then? Not that I'm aware of, no. Uh, it means normally you would go to parole hearings and you would put your case forward to whether you've changed as a person or it, it's massively dependent on how you've been in the actual place. So that would depend on her behaviour at Rampton and what the nurses would or the doctors would file in their reports of how good she has been at the time. That's all taken into consideration in a parole hearing and it could end up that a person, if they have had a length of time where they've been good and they've shown good behaviour, they can end up coming out on parole. But in this case, that wasn't, that wasn't to be. I just want to go back to a syndrome that was mentioned during the reading and that's Munchausen syndrome. There was actually two of them that were mentioned. One was Munchausen syndrome. The other one was Munchausen syndrome by proxy. In Alit's early life, she suffered from Munchausen syndrome. And just to explain what that actually is, it's a diagnosis given to people when they injure themselves or cause self-harm in order to gain attention from others. And what you found further on in life, certainly when she took on the nursing role, she had elements of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Now Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a diagnosis that's given to people that are in a caring role who will deliberately exaggerate, fabricate or cause physical, psychological or behavioural health problems in those that they're actually caring for. It's often diagnosing people who have a caring role with children. Uh, in the case of Alit, that, that was the case, be it even just a, a nurse or a mother really in that case. The main reason for the disorder is the need for attention, often gaining often gained through orchestrating a situation where there seemed to be the martyr. This was certainly the case for Alit. She was deliberately harming children in secret in order to portray a very different image of her being a caring woman who nurses children during illnesses that she would exasperate or cause. Alit was also able to watch children dying because the children were merely a means of her getting uh, meeting her own needs. Uh, she had no emotional attachment to these individuals um, other than the fact that they played in gaining her attention and praise. I would say an example of this was certainly seen in, with Katie's mother, Katie being one of the twins. When Katie's mother made Alet the godmother to Katie. So that's both your um, examples of Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So I guess the reason Alet didn't have the chance for parole hearings was maybe because there's no cure for Munchausen's by proxy. So if they did, um, if she was given parole, she she would go right back to reoffending against children. Or the other reason would be that the Home Office deemed her too dangerous to be let out, even if there was a cure, because the crimes that she had already committed um, would mean that she needs to pay for these crimes. Yeah, just in terms of the first point you mentioned, I think... You're probably true. It's probably quite truthful there because during the actual trial itself, Professor Meadows' opinion was that Beverly Allert would never actually be cured, and he actually did state that he felt that if she was ever released, that she would be a danger to society. So that mirrors what you've just said there. So I think Allert had a severe case of Munchausen by proxy. Then, like you mentioned before, mothers can have it too, where they 
um, go to the GP with various ailments for their children uh, when their children aren't actually that ill. But Ali obviously took it further and um, killed children. The facility, which has some 1,400 staff, deal with around 400 inmates, cost taxpayers around £2,000 a week. And it's also been revealed that she's received over £25,000 in benefit since her incarceration in 1993. So for anyone that's interested how Beverly Allett's story has been portrayed in film, certainly on TV, there's been a dramatisation of the story made, which is called Angel of Death, in which Charlie Brooks plays Allett. In 2008, Allett's story was depicted in an episode of the crime documentary Crimes That Shook Britain. That's actually one of my favourite shows. It looks at all the notorious killers that are in the UK. And if you haven't seen that already, it's certainly, and you're into crime, it's certainly one that you should actually follow. She was also investigated in the Channel 5 series of documentaries titled Born to Kill, featuring as one of the few on the series to be really considered by experts as born with a predisposition to kill. Oh, that's very interesting because mm. there's always a debate of whether you were born evil yeah. or if you were um, nurtured that way. Yeah. And this was also as a result of her suspected Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Possibly because she was in a caring role and people find that shocking. The person who's meant to be caring for you is actually killing your children. I think that does come across as shocking. But the more you actually delve into crime programs, the more you see it. I think it's actually more common than we believe to be. There was one series that I watched with a nurse that was in America who would go online and actually promote suicide in chat rooms to teenagers. It's something I think we'll definitely follow at a later time because it does link to the UK. Certainly one of the teenagers that committed suicide in the UK was a result of talking to this nurse online who was under a fake name and promoting themselves to be a younger teenager who also wanted to commit suicide. Imagine having that on your conscience. So next we're crossing the pond again to New York and we're looking at the alphabet killer. So thank you for joining us. You've managed to make it this far so just keep going. Please remember to like, subscribe, comment, share. On YouTube. Facebook. Twitter. And iTunes. And don't forget Stitcher. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe possibly Spotify in the future. Yeah, hopefully. If hopefully we'll get onto there. Well, there's a truth to be told behind the scenes. I'm Sheddy. And I'm Shabs. Ciao for now. Bye.